Welcome to Pull Up A Chair. I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK. And in each episode, I'll be chatting to some of the world's most influential business leaders and thinkers on sustainable growth, what it means to them and why it matters. We'll also be exploring the big question of how to deliver growth in a responsible and ethical way that meets the needs of people, planet and profit. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson. Tani is Britain's greatest ever Paralympic athlete, the winner of 11 golds, three silvers and one bronze over five Paralympic Games and 30 world records, establishing herself as one of the most gifted and courageous sportswomen of her generation. Since retiring from athletics, Tani has held many important roles in sport, including Vice President of the Women's Sport Foundation and most recently Chair of Sport Wales. She became an independent peer in the House of Lords in 2010. She is a prominent and vocal advocate for disability rights, welfare reform and inclusion in sport. And I'm delighted that Tani is also a member of our Inclusive Leadership Board here at KPMG. She provides external challenge and insight against our inclusion, diversity and equity commitments. Tani Gray-Thompson, please pull up a chair. Tani, a very warm welcome to Pull Up A Chair. Look, the conversation today is about sustainable growth, and that means growth in a responsible and ethical way that delivers to the needs of the people, the planet, and uh, profit. And I just wondered if you could explain to me what sustainable growth means to you. So a lot of my work is around equality, diversity, inclusion. Um, and to me, it's about getting the most talented people into an organisation at whatever level that is. But it's about having um, a healthy development as well in terms of, of the people. Um, I think it's been you know, really interesting in the last couple of years, so many businesses are now talking about the planet in, in a different way. Um, and actually for the next generation of young people coming into business, you know, there are things that matter to them in a different way than maybe my generation or a, a generation older than me. So. Um, I think it's gone beyond just looking at numbers of people from, from different groups. It's actually um, developing a business in a, a much more holistic way, which actually is then, it, it's got to be better for the business. It's, it, it's, it's going to be, you know, you, you hope it will be sustainable. Um, and you have a better connection with the people, not that you're just trying to attract in, but the, you know, the services that, you know, businesses are trying to sell outside. So. Um, you know, this is not a conversation that I was having with really anybody, even five or six years ago. And I do think um, the impact of COVID, that has had a, a big impact on how we all think about how we work, how we want to work, do we want to work, who we want to work for. Uh, and I think that's been, been a really interesting time. However painful, painful COVID's been, um, I think it's made us all question ourselves in a different way. And you say something quite interesting there about who we work for. And, you know, in terms of inclusion and access, which is something they have been very vocal on, and in many ways we see that as a competitive advantage, right? Whether it's in sports or business or society. What does inclusive leadership mean to you? Inclusive leadership is um, about uh, getting leaders who not just have, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, a wide background and come from different backgrounds. It, it's having leaders who think differently about who they bring into the organisation, who are really open-minded in terms of, of who they, they bring in. 
Um, you know, we've known for years that diverse boards and diversity in business is really important. It's taken some businesses much longer to, to catch up with that. Um, but for me, the, the best leaders I've, I've worked with are the ones who aren't afraid to have really good people around them, who, who sort of, I mean, business is a hierarchy. There, there has to be some kind of hierarchical structure. But the best leaders are the ones who, who aren't afraid to not be the expert in everything. And, and it's, it's not easy for a leader to say, I don't know. Um, but, but actually, it's thinking about business as being a jigsaw and the people that you have around you and bringing loads of different skills. And those are the people who are, for me, amazing to work with because they're open to learning as well. And I think that's where a lot of businesses have changed in the last few years as well, is that um, you know, there's more recognition that we need different people. Um, you know, when I first sort of got involved in sport, there were so few women in leadership positions. There are more than there used to be, but there's still so many op more opportunities to, to do more to bring in different people. So I think we've, we've seen the benefit of having your perspectives. You know, you've got a very interesting uh, sort of lens you bring to the conversation, whether it's sports, business or politics. Where do you think we've made the most progress? I think you've made the most progress, actually, just in terms of um, being open to having discussions. Actually, it, it never felt like some of those discussions were closed. But actually, it's that honesty about where you are. And also, I think, not underestimating the, the challenges that are still there. Um, I do see some businesses who, you know, will make very grand statements about what they want to do, but don't necessarily put in the building blocks. Um, but I think that recognition of, you know, if this was easy, every business would have done it years ago. And, and there are ups and downs, you know, when you're trying to change and evolve a business. So um, for me, the exciting bit is about um, that internal challenge, wanting to be better um, and, and doing things, sometimes big things, sometimes small things, but genuinely doing things to bring about a difference. And, and that's always exciting to work with people who, who want to change and do more. And you've always talked about trying to change things as you go along. And you use that, I think, in the context of your sporting career. But when you think about what you're seeing in politics, business and in sports, what do you think we can learn from each other? So when I started competing as an athlete, you know, the, the world didn't really know very much about Paralympic sport. And, you know, it, there was some personal interest in there that it was great, you know. You know, I, I, I got recognition early on, but it was about trying to change things internally within sport to make it better for everyone, because actually it made it better for me as well. And I think from being a young athlete, you realise sometimes you can make big changes, sometimes it's lots of little changes that can then come, come together. So I think it's, um, it's always important to recognise when you've done something well, or learn from things that haven't gone well. I mean, that's the other thing I think um, that your team do really well, is, is just being open and honest about what works and, and what what doesn't. Um, and for me, that, that's really important because it's always about trying to improve. And so going from sport to politics, it's not such a big change. There's a lot of politics in sport, uh, <laughs> sometimes way more feisty politics in sport than there is in, in politics. But I think we, we can learn from each other. You know, as an athlete, you have to improve every single year. You have to be better, faster, stronger. Uh, and otherwise you don't to make the There's a, a massive sense of urgency because also as an athlete, you have a really short life in terms of your ability to achieve things. Um, and, and that, for me, translates into my working life now in that 
you know, you have to have that sense of urgency. You can't just keep going, oh, well, we'll do it next year. We'll do it the year after. We'll do this. We'll fix this thing first. We'll try and fix that thing later. It's actually about raising the bar for everybody. Recognising, actually, you raise the bar for one group. It sometimes, you know, it, it moves up and down. Um, but I, I do think you have to have that sense of urgency. And if I take it back to some of the campaigning work I do, um, the Disability Discrimination Act promised that January the 1st, 2020, all trains in this country would be step free. Every government's allowed derogations to that. It's now going to be 2070. So, you know, that's... Yeah. And, and lots of disability rights campaigners like me sort of kept hoping that we we're going to make that date and sort of that there has been a shift. So I think that also brings a sense of urgency that, you know, some of the things that I'd still like to see, I'd like to see sooner rather than later, you know, some point before I retire. So, you know, that, that sense of urgency is, is really important. I think this this pace of change or the expectation around pace of change is really important and I think it's quite easy to get quite despondent with all the challenges and things that are happening around us but what I do see is our colleagues are really determined to be involved in making a difference in whatever way that might be um, despite the fact that it's going to take till 2070 to get step-free access for all trains what how optimistic are you about the future? I'm really optimistic um, most of the time, I have to say. I mean, there, there are moments where you just think, oh, like, are we still talking about this? So I think I, I do see step changes. It's, sometimes it's not as quick as I'd like, but then also making really quick changes um, doesn't, comes back to the sustainability question, um, doesn't always bring sustainability with it. So you can have a scheme that does something for a year, and then if you move on to something else again, then, you know, you haven't, you know, develop the sustainability that, that you want to have. So, um, you know, what, what I do find from, from working with your team is that you never get a no, which is, is really good. You, you might get yes, but that's hard, or yes, but how? But the fact that you start off with um, a positive point of view about how we can be better, that, that's one of the things that kind of keeps me going. Because as soon as you get into any organisation where they just start off with, no, we're not doing it, or we've done that before, you, you know that that's going to be an organisation that's not going to change and evolve, doesn't want to be better, and, and just wants to stay really settled where it is. And that might be safe right now for a business, but it's not going to be sustainable 10, 20 years from now. I think you're absolutely right. The, the expectations of us as employers as good corporate citizens and societal citizens is that you do need to think about how we change that contract with each other whether it's customers suppliers or employees or or or, or, or as leaders so people with disabilities are woefully underrepresented in business what do you think business can do to really open up access the reality is that you know only 50 percent of disabled people who can work are, are actually in employment and that's for lots of different reasons some of it's about opportunity um, uh, some of it's uh, about their own belief uh, and some of its you know businesses just need to be better at looking for for different people so you know what businesses can do I mean so actually now a lot of businesses are starting to look at disability pay gap they're actually starting to look at the numbers um, that is dependent on there being a culture where people feel that they can declare whether they have uh, a visible or invisible impairment which is is really important the reality again is that a lot of disabled people don't want to have to declare because they perceive that they'll be treated differently. Now, whether they are or not, it doesn't matter. If they perceive they'll be treated differently, that, that's a, a real thing. So, you know, measuring the gaps uh, are important. But it's also, you know, for a lot of businesses, not just thinking about how you get in and out of the building or whether you've got the right number of accessible toilets. 
it's, it's actually, I mean, that's a really important part, but it's thinking about how people can get in and out, you know. Um, you know, there's only a third of London tube stations that are step free. So if you're a wheelchair user, that can be very limiting in terms of where you're able to work, you know, in, in the city. Um, so this is again where businesses need to be flexible in terms of home working, traveling, you know, um, you know, you can't fix the tube. Uh, but but actually what businesses can be is understanding about how people need to work or or how they can work. So I think in the next couple of years we'll see, you know, really big changes and it's got to be something that's, you know, part of, um, you know, uh, a business's development. Again, it's not going to be quick because the d discrimination disabled people face is in education, is in health, is in physical activity, sport, you know, there's, there's lots of different bits to it. But if you don't measure the basics, then there's no chance that you'll ever improve. And we also talk about, you know, culture doesn't just happen and you can't just change it. We talk about evolution and evolving culture because it changes with times. It changes with the, the nature of the people you're interacting with, the skill sets, etc. What role do you think boards have in, in that sort of leading from the front and driving culture? I mean, boards have a a huge role to play um, in terms of actually how they behave around the board table is really important um, because you know you, you can't talk about culture as something that happens outside the, the walls of a, a boardroom it, it has to be at, at the heart of, of everything you do and you're absolutely right you know culture does change uh, and you know we've seen it in sports some really good organizations can have a blip and you know you, you it's about trying to spot the patterns of behavior and moderate and change the behaviour before it actually starts pulling a culture apart. Uh, and that's about getting to know the people that you work with um, and um, being able to have those open, honest conversations. I think, you know, sort of probably 10 years ago, you know, uh, maybe in some places, you know, even, you know, nearer time than that, having to present this like sort of really bold front about everything's fine and it's all, you know, it, and, and that's that's actually exhausting for for the vast majority of, of people to to have to live up to that. So, you know, culture is is so important. And I think sometimes it, you know, having it, in sports, the rules of engagement, but also the culture is something that fits. You, you need the rules for one thing, but the culture is something that fits around that, that you need both working really well together. Um, and it, it's coming back to that that open conversation, the ability to be honest about when things aren't going right, then you've got the best chance of, of, of pulling it back to where you want it to be. I think you've answered my question in that last sentence, but I was going to ask you one more thing. So you have never shied away from facing into behavioural cultural challenges, right, in whatever you've done. Um, what is the one bit of advice you'd give to our listeners? Because we're all trying to manage these moving parts. What would be the one bit of advice you'd give to our listeners in terms of because you call talk about nudging, right? Yep. One step at a time. So what's that first step? The advice, uh, sometimes it's really useful to sense check things. Um, so I've been in meetings where something's not felt right or there's behaviour that uh, felt to me like it was misogynistic or ableist or a combination of both. Sometimes it's useful to sense check that with, with other people around the table. Sometimes you have to go with your gut instinct. Uh, and raise it. I probably haven't always raised things in the best way. You kind of learn from it as well. You know, I try not to do a, a knee-jerk reaction to things that I see because it's about trying to bring change. It's not about having your platform in a moment for screaming into the ether for something 
that you think is, is wrong. Um, so it, it's interesting, even some of the tables I've sat around, you, you do need to sense check and just say to people, did, did I see that? Did I get it wrong? And, and actually, sometimes it's amazing. I've sat around tables with incredible people who've maybe felt uncomfortable about raising something as well. Uh, and, and that's happened more than I probably ever expected to be. Less, again, less now than it used to be. Um, but um, I think it's also about um, sharing some of those issues to find the best solution. So if I take it kind of back to a personal, you know, I, I experience um, different levels of ableism. And I kind of think, um, you know, I was on a tube a while ago and up at seven in the morning and somebody was like, oh, it's rush hour, don't travel at this time because it's very busy and people have got jobs to go to. It's like, I've got a job. Uh, and, and actually what I want to say is, go away, don't be so proud. And it's like, actually, that's not going to change their view of disabled people. So you try to kind of educate people along the way. So, so I think, actually, the, the very short answer to it is, is sometimes it's good to step back, evaluate the situation and take a, even a little bit of time to think about what the solution is because you need to educate people, not just shout at people. I, I absolutely agree. Bring people on the journey with you rather than sort of show them, yeah, the light. Um, you've said in the past that in raising the bar is really important. I think you said that in the context of sort of gender, race and, uh, and the, the disability. Can you just elaborate what you meant by that and why? So I think it's, it's, it's trying to make changes that benefit the most number of people. So, um, you know, over the years I've seen, you know, different schemes that will uh, and, and you need to you you can't do everything for everybody um, because actually businesses don't have the capacity you've also got to be quite realistic about that but I think it's quite interesting now that you know in the last few years we've talked more about intersectionality and in terms of um, how you can just help more people and it's just be mindful of of the different groups you're either trying to attract or get to or educate in terms of of, of changing behavior so you know, I experience actually very little misogyny because it's much easier to discriminate against me as a disabled person. So I've had it in the past where I've uh, gone to meetings where somebody's deliberately booked in an accessible room, knowing that I'm coming to a meeting um, to make it really difficult for me to get there. And, you know, just quite low level and, 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 and things like that. So I think it's, it's kind of stepping back and again, looking at the whole of yeah. what we're trying to do. Um, and the trouble is, it, it's easy to put people in boxes, and we do it all the time, you know, even without thinking about it sometimes. Um, and I think it's just being aware that, you know, not making assumptions about people or their backgrounds. So it is about, again, trying to get the best talent pool. Um, but also, it might be, it's about, you know, trying to develop talent that you have as well. Because we just, we, we have to just be different, you know. we. Uh, you know, when I first started in sports politics, I remember sitting on one board where I was the youngest by about 35 years and I was the only woman. <laughs> you know, they used to call me the young girl. Actually, I was quite young, but, you know, things like that. So, you know, it, it's always useful to be reminded of those things to, to kind of think about actually where we are and, and, and again, where we need to be. So you raise a really important point there. You know, you talked about inter intersectionality and you can only be inclusive if you come from a place of understanding. And compassion right and it, that is quite diff that takes time to sort of take time and effort to learn and understand how others how others lives um, are impacted by whether it's our actions 
whether it's a decision which room you're hosting it in, where it is, what time it is. You know, we see that right now as well in our workforce. Um, and right now, I think we're, in a, we're at a time where mental health and well well-being is at the forefront of every business's mind. And I think everybody's been impacted through the pandemic. What role do you think that business has in helping sort of address and face into that? I, I think, I mean, I do love working at home, but also I, I need to be around people. And, you know, in Westminster, we went back um, March 21, um, back in the building. And this is a building that is based on, for 600 years, has been based on presenteeism that you actually have to be in the building. But it just reminded me of those those moments that, you know, they are the water cooler moments that you can't book into a diary, that different conversations that if you just see someone in the corridor. So I think the, the challenge going forward is, is how we balance the working from home, but also being in the office, not, not least for young people to train and advise them and for them to see and experience the, the culture. Um, and I think there's businesses that are, you know, working through that at the moment about what it's going to look like. Um, so I think we've got an interesting few years ahead in terms of, you know, um, actually just being understanding and coming back to disability. You know, disabled people were asking for working at home for or flexible working for a long time. Some businesses really struggled with that. And I think we also have to get away from the assumption that people who aren't in the building aren't working. Yeah. You, it's, you know, you can be in the building but not doing anything. You can just look busy. Um, and, and so, but that comes back to the, the culture that, you know, how people work, when they work, how they want to work is, is a really important um, tone to, to set. So, you know, we, in the House of Lords, we went online, you know, I mean, really quickly. We were voting through an app. If that had been suggested January 2020, there would have been meltdown. And then suddenly that you find that there is, because you're forced to, there's a different way of, of doing things. And I think we can all be a bit smarter in terms of, of, of how we work and, and, and how we want to contribute. You raise a really important point there, Tani. You know, the pace of adoption of technology really helped us accelerate this hybrid working, this remote working, virtual. I mean, who'd have ever thought, right, you'd be doing um, app voting. And I think as we look forward, we're, you know, we're facing into a workforce and a future of work that is quite mosaic in terms of the skills, the talent pools, the opportunities, the access. So I think the combination of what we've learned from the pandemic to get facing into a future that's not the same as we, we've had in the past, is going to be quite exciting for all of us. And I was, you know, I'm sure, and I know we talk about that a lot, and I'm sure you're seeing it in all the work that you do as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been incredible, you know, where we are now. I mean, you know, disabled people were asking for flexible working for a long time, and it didn't happen, and now it has happened. And, you know, I, I do think we've got to be careful that people just don't have their laptops and phones switched on 20 hours a day. Um, I'm, I do struggle to switch off. Uh, and, and to take time away without feeling guilty. And I know as a mum as well, you know, guilty when I'm home, guilty when I'm away, guilty when I'm working, guilty when I'm not working. Um, now my daughter's at university, I've completely forgotten things like school holidays. Remember that panic of who's going to look after my children, what's going to happen, you know, all, all that thing. So I think there's that bit of, of just being mindful about the best way of working. Um, and we've seen some great things. Can you imagine um, 10 years ago, people writing at the bottom of the email, you know, I work flexibly, flexibly. Just because I email you at two o'clock in the morning doesn't mean to say you have yeah. to reply. You know, that's a step forward. But, but also I think we have to do more to make sure that, you know, people um, 
you know, are able to switch off. I love technology. I, I just think it's incredible the things we can do. But also it comes back to the mental health and well-being. It's, we, we've just got to be careful it doesn't take over um, the times that we're meant to be away from work as well. And I think that's, that's something that all businesses are probably facing into, right? How do we support the well-being of our colleagues? And what role do we have ensuring that we do encourage people to stop we all, we're, we're all struggle with our boundaries, but I think we have to be quite um, alert to the challenges that this kind of always on, always available, whether you're in the office or out the office, you know, it can take over people's lives. And let's be really clear, you know, life is more than work. And, and so that's really important. Um, knowing you as I do, I know you'd be an absolute force of nature in anything you do, right? But I want to just take us back to your sporting achievements and incredible, well, 30 world records. Um, what learning or what link would you make from your experience as a superb athlete, a very accomplished athlete, and what you are seeing and hearing and what you would aspire maybe business to, to take forward? What is it, what's that link between the two? If I start off with the sport bit first, it, you've got to do loads of really boring stuff as an athlete. <laughs> I mean, training is just really boring. It's repetitive, you know, I train twice a day, six days a week, 50 weeks of the year, you know, the wedding, birth of my daughter was based around my competition schedule. That was purely my choice, you know, that it's, um, you know, for these moments where you get to do really fun stuff and, you know, over five Paralympic Games and the medals that I won, it's 19 and a half minutes of my life on the track. So for me, it, it, that's always really useful to go back and kind of think, you know, you've just got to get lots of dull stuff done. Now you hope work's not really boring all the time, but the reality is you've, you've just got to get the bread and butter stuff done for the chance to, to kind of shine. Um, and I think that's probably the most useful thing. Now I'd be fibbing if I said I answered emails in the order that I got them and I did, you know, I tend to know the emails I'm ignoring, I think I do. Um, but, you know, you've, you know, life is not, glamorous all the time you've 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 got to make hard decisions you've, you've got to crack on with the stuff that that you need to do you kind of need to hit your deadlines and you need to make kind of work pay um so i think that's the thing that um i find helpful in terms of what i'm doing you know in politics the moment that you get in the chamber to try and change legislation is a tiny bit mm. again it's i spend most of my life just reading white and green papers and writing notes for that moment where you may have, you have two or three minutes um and, and that's really useful to me in terms of the list of things that I still want to do, in terms of reminding myself that you've just got to do the hard graft. And I think that's actually a really important lesson for all of us as individuals, not just a business, right? That those sometimes boring, sometimes hard, hard grafty things are really important to get to the outcome. And it comes back to the point we talked about earlier around sustainable growth and inclusion and you know nudging towards where you want to go. You kind of need to be on that treadmill to be able to see the, 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 the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think sometimes we forget that because we're so impatient and we want change and we want it today. And we want to hit those targets and we want to be able to say that we've moved forward. But sometimes you just have to just go with the slog. Yeah, and, and you know, prioritizing your work, which I'm sometimes better at than others. I would love to tell you I'm brilliant at it all the time, <laughs> you know, because there's urgent and important. And, you know, when there's lots of people, you know, around you sort of screaming for deadlines and, you know, you're trying to do things. I think it comes back to, you know, the, the EDI is when there's a lot going on. It's really easy to just kind of, OK, I'll do that next week. Or, you know, it's important, but it's not urgent. And um, the one thing that was really easy as an athlete was 
you were able to carve out time um, to reflect because you can't train 10 hours a day. Well, you can, but you're not very effective, you know, and you, you don't improve. So it was much easier when I was an athlete to, to carve out that reflection time and think, OK, what did I do today? Well, what do I need to do tomorrow? What do I do, need to do next week? And to be able to slot those things in. I, I try and do that. Again, sometimes I'm better than others. Um, but sometimes when you're on the treadmill of work, it's just that never ending series of deadlines. Um, it it does, does get difficult, you know, and again, you know, in, in any business, you know, I don't know anyone KPMG sitting around not doing anything. You know, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff going on all the time, um, and you know that that's that's hard to get everything done that you need to do or that you want to do. Yeah. Well, the work is never ending, right? But but you have to be able to sort of stop, park, move away, and come back again, refreshed. Um, I'd like to turn to you if that's okay. So. Tani, you've achieved so much and we know we get the wisdom of your experiences um, every time we meet. But if you could go back to the younger Tani, <laughs> just maybe imagine your daughter, um, what would you advice would you give yourself and why? Sometimes it's really good to take a deep breath. <laughs> just, just, oh, I mean, there's always so much to learn from the things that, you know, do. I mean, I do feel passionately about things. And um, yes, sometimes uh, I think I'm getting better as I get older about not jumping in and, um, you know, jumping to conclusions uh, about things. But sometimes my frustration with the pace of change means that, you know, I have jumped in and said, like, well, you know, you know, we need to do things now. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say to my younger self, just take a breath. Um, but then sometimes, you know, you it, it's 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 how you operate. Sometimes you you do need to challenge. And I think it's I think I've become a lot better over the years about being a critical friend. Mm. Um, and it's also uh, working with organisations who accept that critical friend relationship, which is really important. You know, it, it's got to work both ways. So yeah, um, and um, yeah, I'll probably say that to my daughter as well. <laughs> yeah, don't roll your eyes at people. That's never good. Yeah, and as an 18-year-old, I'm sure she's very happy with that bit of advice. <laughs> um, you have, you've said that medals should not be won at the cost of everything else, which I think is a lovely way to articulate, you know, kind of some of the things that we think about. Um, and I'd love to get your sort of elaboration of what you mean by that, but also in the context of when you talk about everything else, what do you do to sustain yourself? I mean, you're a very busy person and you do lots and you never say no. You just take on more because you're so passionate about culture, process, making sure things are fair and equal and opportunity for everybody. But how do you look after yourself? Um, so for me, it's, you know, elite sport is not balanced. You know, when you you give up so much of your life to be an elite athlete. It, it isn't balance. But for me, it's about how you, you either try and maintain balance through it or you put balance back into someone's life at the end of the career. And the best thing that ever happened to me was that my parents didn't allow me to find myself as an athlete um, because it's really difficult. I mean, I get it even now. People go, oh, you're the athlete, aren't you? And I retired in 2007, <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, and so, you know, when I was competing, my, my parents were very keen for me to have other interests, think about other things. My dad, every single year, at the end of every year, would say to me, so what are you going to do when you retire? Like, what's next? What's your, your, your backup plan if, if you don't make the team next year? 
I remember as a young athlete thinking, oh, here we go. Um, but actually, that, that's really important to think about what else, which actually meant that when I did retire, I had options about what I was going to do. And um, that, that made my transition out of sport really easy, actually, uh, in a way that I, I see some athletes don't have that. And then, um, so I think it's the same now. It's um, uh, being in Parliament, not defining myself by just being a parliamentarian. Um, although I was very excited last year, someone actually stopped me in the street and instead of saying, you're that athlete, they said, you're that parliamentarian. I was like, yes, I am, <laughs> yes. I've been there since 2010, yeah. And they went, yeah, we don't like what you do. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> but yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, what do I do? Um, I read, I spend time with my family. Uh, I just try and take time away. Um, uh, go to the gym, do some exercise. Um, actually, the hardest part is... Uh, going to the gym and having to reevaluate what I lift in the gym. So I now count the weight stack from the top, not the bottom. So that's a bit of a psychological change. Um, but, but for me, physical activity is a really important part of it because it's just the time when um, I'm not thinking about things, you know, that I just get away from everything. And it is really important to, to have time away because then you're refreshed coming back. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I read lots. Tani, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. Our, our listeners um, have had a real treat because you're so passionate about giving people opportunities to help them thrive. And I think there are two things I would take away. For as individuals, there is something around learning from your experience about building resilience and having a backup plan. I love it. We'll have a backup plan. What if? And I think as an organisation, and I know we benefit from it, having that critical friend that challenges us in a caring way, but pushes us as well, right? And that means we have to be open in terms of the way we think about things. So I think that's what I would take away from, from, this, um, from this interview. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on Pull Up A Chair today, whether you're at home, at work, or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from business leaders and influencers on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet and profit. Goodbye.